0: Please give attention to the word of the Lord. A reading from the letter of James, chapter 4. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, we are continuing our series in the book of James, and we have come to the perhaps most distressing series of verses in the book of James for the explicit reason that James includes two primary rebukes. And these two primary rebukes, as you heard in the reading, begin with, come now. One of the things that you have to understand, James is writing a letter of rebuke to the churches, but it's also a letter in in which he is moving through the Sermon on the Mount, it was common style and still exists to today for ministers of the gospel, a tradition that's been handed down by the apostles, to take the writings of God and then to establish them by uh, what is called a midrash in the, in the Jewish tradition. The midrash was an expounding of the law of God in such a way as to develop it and to press it out into its implications. And through our series, we've been seeing how James is actually doing that with the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's encouraged his, his hearers to repent, to be faith-filled, to mourn for, for their sins. And now he's come to a place where he issues strong rebukes at those who are trusting in riches and boasting in themselves, in the pride of their own power and their own will. So as we go through this reading, I want to look at first his warning against speaking evil against one another. We saw in chapter 2 how he demonstrated, and and chapter 3 as well, the, the dangers of speech which is loose and which is filled with hatred. Now he looks at speech which is boastful of one's own power, one's own pride, and speech which is condemning for the neighbor. And so he, he demonstrates the law of God is something that to, should be kept. He puts forth Jesus Christ as the judge and the lawgiver. And then he moves to call two strong rebukes. First, to those who boast in their own pride and their own power. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will do this and that. And then he issues another rebuke. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for miseries which are coming upon you. He, bo- he is... As a prophet, James is stepping into the office of the prophet in which the the office of the prophet is executed not by telling the future, but by calling the people of God to faithfully return to the word of the Lord and by the word of the Lord to repent. And so he issues two strong rebukes and then reminds them of the necessity of patience for the coming of the Lord. And we're gonna see how that had a specific I believe that had a specific fulfillment in James's day, and it also has a fulfillment for our day. So James warns his hearers throughout his entire letter of the dangers of speech, and here he specifically warns his hearers against the speech which is condemning or judging. And right at the onset, I want to say clearly that his use of, of judging is not what we Typically, do. Judgment here in the use of James is not making moral distinctions. It is not saying this is bad and this is evil. In the context of James's uh, commandment not to judge your brother, that judgment is the sort of judgment which is condemning. And by that I do not mean saying you are in sin or you are not in sin, but rather attributing evil motives when there is no clear evil fruit. So many times we hear in the common culture, when, when, whenever there's a, an admonition against sin or an admonition towards righteousness, people come back with the accusation, well, you're just judging me. Or Jesus said, do not judge. And yes, Jesus did say, do not judge. But if you continue the verse which you're quoting, he says, judge with right judgment. He says, do not judge but judge with right judgment. James here, as you can see in his, in his letter, he's making judgments against those who boast and those who are trusting in wealth. And so he is not saying a judgment which is baseless or a judgment, uh, he's not saying a judgment which is baseless should be uh, prohibited. He is describing the sort of judgment which attributes evil motives. It's the sort of judgment which looks at external realities that aren't clear definitions of sin, and then extrapolates or, or uh, you know, implicates or attributes evil to the person that you're accusing. In verse 11, he says that they should not speak evil against one another. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And if you're familiar again with the Sermon on the Mount, James is walking us through the Sermon on the Mount, and we remember the anger that Christ warned us against that would call our brother an idiot. And then Christ warned us, saying, he who calls his brother an idiot is liable for the judgment. James is, James is playing jazz, if you will, with Christ's teachings. He's not making it up as he goes along. He's playing in that same style and that same sort of key. For example, if you listen to a guitarist... Uh, for example, John Mayer is a, a guitarist who's popular today, and John Mayer traditionally plays in blues or jazzy styles of guitar, and every once in a while on some of his albums, he'll borrow a riff from another famous guitarist, like George Harrison or Eric Clapton, and, and he will steal it and develop the theme quite a bit. The point isn't to say that you know, this is what James is doing. He's not stealing from the Lord. He's taking Christ's commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's then letting them develop a little bit. He's, he's taking them and applying them to human situations and human behaviors. So he's taking Christ's warning against speaking evil, and then he's impressing it upon his hearers. Going on in verse 11, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. It's interesting to see here that throughout his entire letter, and here again, James necessarily implies that they should be concerned that they're not doing the law. And we know quite clearly that righteousness and justification is not established by keeping the law. However, the New Testament is extremely clear that those who have found faith in Christ who become new creations by the Holy Spirit, part of the original new covenant message in Jeremiah 31 is they would be given new hearts and God would then take their, his law and write it in those new hearts so they would be able to do the law by the Holy Spirit. Again, this is not describing sinless perfection or it's not describing approaching God on our own merits, but rather he says they should be concerned that they are not a doer of the law. He's rebuking them if they judge, and the implication is they should be concerned with doing the law. And what is doing the law except for loving God and loving our neighbor? We cannot love our neighbor while we are condemning our neighbor. James reiterates Christ's warnings against the anger which results in judgment. Again, if you, if you want to look at this in the Sermon on the Mount, go to Matthew 6, through 26. Uh, Jesus actually himself... Uh, gave a warning against this in John chapter 8. Those who judge their brothers who attribute evil and malice to an image bearer of God cannot be, they cannot do that and be a keeper of the law. What does James mean when he says that the one who speaks against a brother speaks evil against the law? He means exactly this, that the law of God was given to men and it establishes the principle of innocence before conviction, based on evidence. The law of God in Deuteronomy 19 says that every charge, every accusation has to be established by two or three witnesses. And so what James is doing here is he's saying when you speak evil in your heart against a brother, you not only are speaking evil against the brother, but you're also saying the law of God is wrong in requiring two witnesses. I I'm a sufficient judge, I'm able to attribute motives to my neighbor, my Christian brother or sister, and I don't need to, to uh, live by the two witnesses requirement. I can be the arbiter of evil or righteousness in the heart of my brother who I'm speaking against. Further, James implies that those who judge condemn uh, those who condemn or attribute evil supplant the authority and position of Christ as the judge. So, not only are they speaking against the law as being evil, attributing the law uh, to be an evil thing, establishing innocence, but they also are taking the place of Christ. This is what we are doing, according to James he says, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but you are a judge. And then he goes on in verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge. And we know quite clearly from the rest of the New Testament that Christ is established as the judge. Peter says this in the book of Acts. Christ says this in John 5, 7, and, 12, or 5, 7, and 8. He He, Jesus Christ, is the judge of all and And James says, there is one lawgiver and one judge, he who is able to save and destroy. Interestingly enough, even in the Christian church of today, we do not consider Jesus Christ as the one who will destroy sinners in hell. We consider Jesus Christ as only a means of escape from wrath and not also the one who executes judgments against those who pervert his ways and hate him. This is what James says, there is one person who is able to save, there is one person able to destroy. We have invented a Jesus who is completely uh, unknown in the scriptures, a Jesus who will execute judgment. And James, again, has been convincing his hearers over and over again. Uh, Chapter 2, verse verse 12 He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. It's an interesting thing that we have pushed Christ away from the the office of judge. But here James establishes it. One of my favorite things every year is when I attend the graduation ceremony at Dominion Academy. There's a tradition there where they sing a song called the Te Deum. One, one of these days, I, I hope to sing it in our church. And one of my favorite lines, it, it actually it moved me to tears the first time I heard it, was when the, this Christian assembly, uh, a, a truly a church uh, gathering, sings the line, you will come to be our judge. For Christians, we ought to love Jesus Christ as the judge. Why? Because as we're going to see at the arc of this passage, James tells us to trust in the righteousness of that judge. If we do not love Jesus Christ as the judge, then we cannot trust Jesus Christ in being the vindicator of innocence and the judge of evil, as James tells us here in this chapter. Nevertheless, it's sung with boldness. You will come, as we, sang in the, or as we said in the Nicene Creed, he will come to judge the living and the dead. He's going to come and he's going to judge. And so what we do, according to James, when we take the position of judging our neighbor and trying to, by our own thinking processes, peer into their hearts and attribute evil motives to something we either cannot understand in their behavior or in their speech, we take Jesus Christ's place as the judge of souls. That is to say, the scripture puts forth God is the only one who can see into the heart of man, and we, when we establish ourselves as judges, when we make judgments that aren't based on real fruit of sinful activity, when we take that place, we supplant Jesus Christ's position as the only judge, and woe are we, he says, but who are you to judge your neighbor? What a, what a terrible thing to do to take the place of Jesus Christ and to tribute evil motives, not just to another image bearer of God, but also in this, con- in this context, to speak evil against a brother. And Paul warns us, these are the brothers for whom Christ died. Even Christ himself in his earthly ministry testified of his innocence in not passing judgment until the proper time. Jesus said that I judge no one, but there is a day on which I will judge. Jesus Christ says that the time to judge has not yet come about. Likewise, Paul warned us against condemning our brothers before the Lord's coming. He said, let what is hidden lie what is hidden, because there is a day in which God will make it manifest. It is not our job as Christians to go around on a sin hunt in our neighbors. We ought to be waiting patiently for the Lord by his spirit to bring reformation to that soul, that individual, or that neighbor that we have issues with, and then if that doesn't happen, for the Lord to settle the accounts. So what is, what is the use for James's warning for us? It's specifically this. The Christian church is a hospital for sinners. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of god the the ones who wish to come into the kingdom of god have to recognize the poverty of spirit that is to say that you and i as the reformers taught us well are beggars we are beggars who have no merit of our own and we must come to christ Asking for pardon and receiving that pardon. And if we have nothing to bring to God of our own merit and he gives us grace, then everything after that is all grace. All it is is grace from the Lord. It is not of our own. And so we must come to God and we must receive grace from him. But then we must live in such a way as we operate with grace towards one another the church is a hospital for the sick, not a hotel for saints. Although the sick should always be on the road to sainthood, they should always be moving towards righteousness in their living. Nevertheless, we stumble in many ways. James, James taught us that early in his letter. If anyone is perfect, if anyone controls his mouth, he's a perfect man. And yet we sin in many ways, in our speech, in our behavior, in our motivations, in lack of zeal, in actual errors. These are all ways in which we sin. And so, because we know our own condition, we ought to operate in grace towards one another. The Christian church has to be a place in which we guard and protect one another. And we we are caring for one another, as Galatians told us, to bear with one another's burdens and also for each one to bear their burdens. This notion of a church community in which each person is trying to follow Christ and also is concerned in love for their neighbor. Those who are given the task of serving the church, this is pastors, elders, deacons, all those who are in some form of leadership, and indeed, in some regard, all those who are part of a church, all of these must hold others in high regard. In 1 Corinthians 8 Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for their squabbling over dietary laws, and he then he, he, he basically says to those who would, who would do such an act so as to destroy the faith of a brother that they're condemning the brother for whom Christ died. What an interesting use of a phrase. Uh, John does a very similar thing in his gospel. He doesn't call himself by the name of John. He says, the brother, uh, the, the brother whom Christ loved. And, and he identifies himself, not on his own name, but on the reality of who Christ is. This is what Paul is doing. He's saying, you ought to think of your brother or sister as those who Christ died for. I was at a conference a few weeks ago, and one of the encouraging ideas that came out, we had a little breakout session in our table, the notion that you know, we as we who preach the word we who read the word and we who receive the word, we ought to do it with the noble idea that I'm given the task and responsibility and privilege to preach to an eternal soul who will live forever. And for those who are among the church, we ought to regard those who are not only image bearers of God, not only people who have been remade after the image of Christ, but someone who will spend eternity with God. This is how we ought to think of our brothers and sisters. All of their weaknesses, which today plague them and, and interrupt Christian fellowship, one day will be gone. Paul says we do not regard anyone according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There's, there's a perspective which we need as Christians who live in community with other Christians, in which we tolerate weakness for a time, we operate in true love, and we call one another up to maturity in grace. It cannot be a battering with the word of God. Have you ever heard that phrase that the judge will throw the book at you? That, that comes from the fact when they used to actually use the scriptures in judgment as their standard of judgment. And the idea was that you're, you're guilty of it all, so he throws the book at you. Uh, you cannot use the scriptures to batter your brother or your children or your parents. It, 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 is not, it, it doesn't work, and it's not the approach that God took with us. It is the kindness of God which leads us to repentance. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 also concerning the type of love with which we ought to love our neighbor is a love which bears all things and believes all things. You know what believes all things means? When our Christian brother repents to us and we forgive them, and they promise to amend their ways, we believe them. We don't believe them in naivety. We don't believe them that they'll never sin again. We believe them in that we trust that by the grace of God, God is bringing his spirit to bear in that person's life, and that true repentance will bring forth some form of fruit. Love never fails. The idea of steadfastness in love is extremely difficult. 1 Corinthians 13 is often quoted at, at weddings, but as much as it applies to marriages, how much more does it apply to the Christian church? It's very easy to love your spouse. It's much more difficult to, in love, love your Christian neighbor who, who sins against you. And, and like the disciples, we might ask the Lord, how often should we forgive our brother? And if, we, if we're counting, if we're keeping accounts, we're not forgiving them the way we ought to. Nevertheless, we, not, we should not judge, but we should love our brothers and sisters. What it means to not judge, therefore, isn't to not rebuke or to not admonish or to not teach, but rather to do all of them in a framework and, and atmosphere of love, to really have the other's best interest at heart, not merely to vent your frustrations and perturbations and, and, uh, and sh- stress about their sin. It's to, to really seek to deliver them as we'll see at the end of uh, the book of James, he says in verse 19, if anyone wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. That's the sort of perspective which we ought to have when bringing, bring, when bringing a right judgment and not a condemning judgment. So, James then calls those who boast about pride and boast about wealth to come and to be reconciled. We ought to hear him saying, Come now, you who say, and come now, you rich weep in hell. We ought to hear him in the office of the prophets. Come now, let us reason together. He, as the apostle of God, is calling these saints who have stumbled into sin, he's calling them to come and to repent He calls them first to reckon with their sin of pride. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Very interesting to know if you've spent any time in business, this is a a very uh, foolish perspective, but it is also a perspective that is easy to slip into day after day of success. If you've ever heard of any sort of financial success or, or what are traditionally called bubbles in markets, there, there is a delusion which comes upon people who have success for weeks after weeks in which they presume to be invincible. This is why I tell people in our church every once in a while, we are in a unique danger in our church because we have so many people who are advancing in careers, who are young, who are being blessed by God, and yet we ought to not take tomorrow for granted. Dare say there are people, I said this last night with some brothers, there are people in this room who will be dead within five years. I'm not prophesying that, but the laws of statistics just work their ways out. We cannot presume on tomorrow. And those who boast saying, I would never die, I would never get cancer, I could never be in a car accident, that would be the grace of God being removed from me, they presume upon the grace of God. Christians get cancer. Christians get into car accidents. Christians lose loved ones, and that is not a sign of the favor of God lifting off of them. If that was, Job would be be the most to be pitied in the scriptures. The apostles would be absolute frauds if death was the measure of you know, an untimely death was the measure of righteousness. Christians are not guaranteed health, wealth, and prosperity. And so what James is doing here in this verse is, he's saying, you don't have any right to boast that you'll be able to even make it to the town, let alone actually trade and make a profit. What if unknowingly all of your trades end up in deficits and in losses? He then goes on to say, verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. It is evil and folly to presume that we of our own wills have the power to bring something about. What did Christ say concerning worry? You do not have the power to turn one hair white or black. Think about that. I've, every once in a while, I have, I have this watch that tracks my heart rate, and every once in a while, it, it's like, hey, you should walk around and get some exercise. You know what? I've never been able to pause my heart rate. I've never been able to just like bring it down to like, a Lance Armstrong cardio level going from 60 to 38 in a minute. We cannot, we cannot achieve those sorts of things. We can't just make our bodies do whatever we want. And you might extrapolate from that saying, if you can't even control, you know, if, if, if breathing and heartbeats are involuntary, if eye twitches are for the most part involuntary. Who are we to, to boast of such great access to be able to travel to a town and execute trade for the economy to be in the right position for us all to trade and make a profit? This is folly according to what James says. What is your life? And then interestingly, again, as a prophet, he's appealing right now to Ecclesiastes. He says, for you are a mist. Isaiah also says, all flesh is grass, it's a vapor. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This is what the Psalms tell us to do. Teach us to number our days that we would gain a heart of wisdom, not presuming upon our own will and our own power. Our life can be cut short. We are not sovereign. We are not powerful. James rightly judges. Remember, he said, do not judge, and we might understand him correctly when we see in the very next verse he makes a moral evaluation. He judges, he calls them evil. He says that their fruit of the sin of pride and boasting should be accounted, namely in this, that those who make confident assertions about the future take God's place as the sovereign All wise and almighty. What do I mean by that? I mean that God, as he is, is sovereign. He reigns. He executes his will. He does his purpose. He is all wise, in which he knows the end from the beginning and he is almighty. He is able to bring his purposes to account. And so just as James warned, saying, if you judge your neighbor, you establish yourself as a judge, so also here he's calling them to repent in their speech. And we might read between the lines in here that he's saying, you're also supplanting God's position as the sovereign and all-powerful. Instead of putting forth their own will, they should, in their speech, subject their will to God's will. This is very important. The scriptures command us here to speak in a way which our hearts would also say amen to, in which we temper or we nuance, if you will. Nuance isn't a great word. Temper is a better word. We temper our plans according to the Lord's will. Verse 15, instead you ought to say, he commands them to change their speech to one which which exemplifies humility. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. He doesn't say it's a character flaw. He calls it evil. He doesn't say this is just poor planning. I Actually, brothers and sisters, this hit me so hard that I opened my little financial tracker and I put right next to my year goal, if the Lord wills. I I seriously did that last night because I was so moved at the presumption that, that we would live in such a way as we are our own, you know, there's this phrase in the modern American parlance, the masters of our own destiny. It's evil. James calls it pride. He says it's boasting. It is a puffing up of one's will and power. If you ever want to go head to head, I mean, it would be like me trying to arm wrestle John Bradbury. There would be no point. I know I would lose every day and twice on Sundays. It would be, it would be, it would be pointless. What, what he's saying is, you're, you as a, as a creature are boasting about your power that you can accomplish something, and instead you ought to approach life if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, tomorrow I will wake up and go to work. Now, Please don't become ridiculous and say, you know, if someone says, pass the Parmesan cheese, if the Lord wills, I will, I will. Don't, what he's talking about is the perspective in which you presume to live for yourself. I believe it's the Heidelberg Catechism that begins with what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own. Those are the first words of their catechism, that we are not our own, but belong both in body and in soul, both in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our only hope is that I've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. And if I've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, then I cannot live to myself. Paul says, no one lives to themselves and no one dies to themselves. Paul likewise said, if any means, the Lord might be glorified even in my death. The the notion in which we ought to approach life for everything, whether it be future, whether it be what we do today, whether it be our efforts to reform and in godly piety, our, our desires to establish prayer or reading the word or family worship or to become knowledgeable in the scriptures or to share and evangelize or to make money in a, in a vocation and in a trade and to use it for God's purposes. Anything we approach as Christians, we ought to approach saying, with a heart of wisdom, if the Lord wills. I have great things that I desire in the Lord, if the Lord wills. So verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. It's an interesting thing as a Christian that the longer you attend church, the more responsibility that you obtain. Because when the Lord shines his light on an area, he demands repentance and he expects that those who receive grace from the Lord and and hear the word of god would become doers james's main theme over and over again it's not the hearers of the word of god it is those who are doers who are truly blessed and so james says now that you know this you're now accountable to this that you ought to guard your heart and and watch your heart lest it drift into presuming your own power James reiterates the vital importance of being a doer of the word of God. For those who are trained by scripture and righteousness to not obey is sin. We're going to have to buy a new clicker. And I'm saying that because it's my, my responsibility to buy a new clicker. So, if the Lord wills. Thank you, Thank you Morgan. That's fun. <clears throat> James then, at this point, calls his hearers to repentance. So just, just for those of you who are, who are keeping track, there's been a warning of supplanting the place of the judge. That's A, and now here is B, come now, you who say, tomorrow we'll do this and that. And now, again, this is another repeating of B. He then says, come now. He says it again. It's a pattern. So there's been A, B, B, and then we'll get to an A again at the end. If you want to think of it like a hamburger, you've got a bun, you've got the meat in the middle, and then you've got another bun at the end. He says in verse one of chapter five, "'Come now, you rich, weep and howl "'for the miseries that are coming upon you. "'Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. "'Your gold and silver have corroded, "'and their corrosion will be evidence against you.' and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up for yourselves treasures in the last days. James testifies against them that those who have trusted in wealth have laid up treasures. Again, Matthew 5 through 7 is Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, and James is walking his audience through the Sermon on the Mount, and he's extrapolating and re-saying the sayings of Jesus to impress it upon his hearers. And notice this quite clearly. He uses a number of imageries that Christ himself used. He says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust doth corrupt. Sorry, I was trained in the King James in grade school. And thieves break in and steal. Right? So what is he saying here? Verse 2 moths have eaten your garments. And then in verse three, your silver and gold, your gold and silver have corroded. That's another word for the word rust. Technically, gold and silver don't rust, they corrode. But the point is that that the treasures which they've established are revealing where their heart is. Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount said, where your heart is or where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He tells them to lay up treasures in heaven, not treasures on the earth. So instead of loving the Lord, these people, again, we are presuming them to be saints. They are hearing this in a Christian church. James is writing a letter to the churches that were scattered after the persecution began in the book of Acts. He says, come now, you rich, weep in hell for the miseries that are coming upon you. Then he goes on to say, you have laid up treasure in the last days. These people have given their affection to things instead of God. This is what idolatry is. It is finding something, whether it be gold that you dig out of the ground and and refine, or whether it be some sort of fame among men, or some sort of power, or some sort of item. And it's taking your heart, which was meant to love the Lord, and it's putting them on stuff instead of the eternal God. This is what idolatry is. It's, it's, make, it's not just making an idol and bowing down to it. It's bowing down to things in our hearts. John Calvin said rightly that the heart of man is an idol factory. It doesn't, you don't need a physical idol to bow down in front of. We bow down to things all the time. Here he says specifically that these people have laid up treasure In the last days, Christ warned that that you could not serve two masters. You would either love the Lord or you would love your money. And these people, according to James, have loved their money, perishable things, when they've been redeemed by the imperishable blood of Christ. All this was done in the last days. And I take James to be meaning specifically the time before Jesus judged the Jewish nation at the coming of the Roman army in 70 AD. From 67 to 70 AD, The Romans sacked the city of Jerusalem and the rest of the Judean areas and executed God's wrath against those people. And I believe that is specifically what James is talking about when he uses the phrase, in the last days. This is testified over and over again in the Gospels. Matthew 16, 28, Acts 2, 17, 2 Peter 3, Isaiah 65. If you've been coming to this church for a long time, this is no new idea for you at all. But I believe what James is doing for his hearers is he's warning them about a judgment which is coming against the city of Jerusalem and all those who live in Judea and the surrounding regions. One of the, one of the things that's hard to remember, oftentimes we focus on the sacking of Jerusalem, but the entire area of Judea was actually warred against. As, they, as the Romans both went to Jerusalem and left, they sacked hundreds of cities. And many, many people in the Christian church who had left Christianity and fled back to Judaism were caught up in this judgment, for they had apostatized. James wanted those who trusted in wealth to do something. He wanted them to repent, specifically by doing this, by weeping and howling for the miseries that were coming upon them. And he anticipates a soon judgment. Notice he says, for the miseries that are coming upon you. He doesn't just mean some sort of misery or judgment which is coming on you later. He says the miseries and the judgments are coming upon the rich in his age, in his day. Luke twenty three twenty eight through 31, Jesus warns the women of Jerusalem. He says, do not weep for me but weep for yourselves and for your children. Likewise, in Revelation 18, there is a, the destruction of the city of Babylon is the only other place in the New Testament where the phrase weep and howl is used. And those who weep and howl in Revelation 18 are the merchants who lose their ships of garments and precious stones and other treasures. Those who weep and howl in the New Testament are those who are judged in the destruction of Jerusalem. And so, I believe James, who wants to call them out of their love for money, to weep and to howl now, to repent of their love for money now, so they they would be delivered from their idolatry. James prophesies against them, invoking the memory of Abel's blood spilled by Cain, which cries out for vengeance. Look closely at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. For those who have ears that are listening to the major themes of the scripture, what cries out against people in scripture? Blood from the ground. And in a second, James is going to say specifically that. They cried out, uh, and the cries of the harvest have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is a term, again, as a prophet, In the Old Testament for when prophets saw Yahweh, for example, in Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6, the prophets there in those chapters see the Lord. But when they see the Lord, he's surrounded by these flaming angels, these angels who are moving back, as Ezekiel says, back and forth in the heavenlies as fast as lightning. And wherever the Spirit moves in heaven, the the, the whirlwinds are moving, and there's this chaos and terror around the throne of God. In Revelation 4 and 5, it's become a, a sea of glass. But at this point in, in Ezekiel 1 through 3 and Isaiah 6, whenever they describe the Lord in terror, they describe him as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angelic spirits, the Lord of of Creatures who, throughout all of the Old Testament, whenever they appear, make humans shudder and fear. And so James is using this phrase, the Lord of hosts, to remind them just who this Lord is that they've persecuted by frauding their workers. By committing fraud against their workers. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. He, he says they've become like the devouring cows. If you remember Joseph's dream, he, he interprets a dream about seven lean cows and seven fat cows. And the seven fat cows are, are the years of opulence that Egypt enjoyed. And then the seven lean cows consumed the fatted cows. This is what the imagery that he's using is. He's saying, you, you were eating grass your whole life, and now you've turned to corn or to some other fatty grain. This is what we do If you've ever heard the phrase grass-fed, cordon-finished, if you've ever bought nice meat, you've probably heard that phrase. Farmers do that because grass doesn't make a cow fat. But corn does, and so they eat lean meat, and then in the final year or two of their life, they switch the the cow over to something a little bit more fatty to give it some richness and flavor. What James is doing is he's saying, you've been living on fraud, other people have been starving, and you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've made yourself ready to be butchered, is the imagery I get from what James is saying. And that is a terrifying imagery when you hear it in the context of what came in the first century judgment. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. You see, he says the wages which you've held back in the fraud which you've committed by them mowing your fields, that's where Cain killed Abel, he killed him in a field, He's saying that your fraud by not paying your employees the right wages that are due to them is murder. And we would say, but James, I was just getting a better dime. I was just making a little bit better margin. You see, what James is doing here is he's saying that those who trust in riches, those who love riches, so much so that they begin to persecute their brother or sister in labor, in market, are actually committing murder by theft. Their fraud is nothing less than a breaking of the law, a form of murder. In Deuteronomy 24, God specifically warned the people of Israel saying, do not do this or else they will cry to me and I will hear. It's, it's, he's literally James is literally quoting from that verse, but then he's applying it and he's saying that that theft of wages by fraud, by, by persecuting their employees, that theft is a form of murder. Citing these two injustices, James calls his hearers to not trust in personal revenge. Now, at this point, what I want to say is that today, in our world today, we have so many evils societally that relate to these verses. If you ever want to begin to become enraged, with great knowledge comes great misery, begin to learn about what our government does with the money that we use. Now, those those of you who've... (coughs) Spend any time with me, especially in private, I've explained to you what our government does. And I'm going to explain it really quickly. In 1913, there was a law which was established which allowed the government to take the coinage away from Congress and to give it to a private entity, which they named the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve has the authority to print money, and originally that money was redeemable in gold, And that gold was scarce and it was limited and it couldn't be created. And for a time they created dollars against that gold and then a number of wars happened and a number of other economic activities took place in which the Federal Reserve, which is not accountable to the people of the United States, then began to take policies in which they were creating more dollars than they had for the gold. Okay, And after a little bit of time happens, We eventually come to Richard Nixon, who divorces forever the redeemability of dollars for gold, and since then, the monetary supply, especially in the last decade, has quadrupled. In the last decade, there is four times as many dollar bills than there were at the start of the decade. And what this does for the poor is it basically takes a dollar that you have in your bank and it creates four more dollars outside of that bank, and then it lends those dollars to those who have access to credit, which are banks, and then those who have the ability to borrow from banks. And what it does over time is it devalues the currency that's in your pocket. It is is a very explicit breaking of the law of God which commands us to establish just weights and measures because it gives out dollar bills to the people and then it changes those dollars. If you take a photocopier to your $20 bill, that is a federal crime. If the government prints more 20s, that is well within their authority, that's the way the system works. So, what is this? It is nothing other than fraud. In 1913, a dollar bill would buy a woman's dress, like a house dress that she might wear to a dinner or a night on the town. And now if you walk into Walmart, a dollar to buy a gown for you know, something that you would go out to a fancy dinner in, it's probably about 120 to $150. The point isn't that we should be so concerned with what the Federal Reserve is doing because we really want to have our money stay really valuable. That would be a denial of the whole intention of do not love money. The point is that it, it murders people. Right? The, the prophets give a warning saying to not go in and conspire together to buy the poor for a loaf of bread. The, the point is that this is a government-perpetuated evil. It is a societal evil, and all the banks of the world execute their activities in this manner. Now, here's the rub. What does James say to do about the Federal Reserve? Does he say to storm the Federal Reserve? There's an office down in Cincinnati. Should we go storm the Federal Reserve? No. The answer is no, in case you didn't know that. So, so the great evils of our day are, you know, we had a great evil of our day, slavery. That was dealt by a judgment of God in the Civil War. The Civil War ended for a time that, it, 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 by no means am I saying the Civil War answered the problem of, of racial harmony. It didn't. Nevertheless, God brought a some, some form of judgment against our country in the Civil War. Likewise, we have compounded that evil in the Federal Reserve, in which we have taken some people and released them from slavery and made all people in America slaves to our government's debt. And we have Congresses and legislative bodies in every state which print wanton bills and demand obligations on you and me without our consent and... They enslave our children through debt obligations, which will come down in the future. Not only that, we have legislated uh, abortions, 1973, and we have the Obergefell v. Hodges, the hijacking of marriage in 2015. What is the answer for a Christian in America today? Is the answer military opposition against the government? Is the answer just living in angst all of your life, being constantly frustrated and dismissive of government and seeing it as an evil and not a necessity or anything to, to be reformed? Is it, is it to look at all of life as this grand conspiracy in which we, the righteous, are persecuted and we just have to live with it? Or should we do something about it? James says you should do something about it. What does he want you to do? Verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The reason I read the coming of the Lord as the judgment coming which came against the, the people of Israel in 67 to 70 AD is this. In the book of Acts, there arises a great persecution in which many of the Christians are thrown in jail and murdered. Likewise, that continues, even though Jerusalem's judge in 70 AD, that Judaizing persecution continues for a, a large amount of time. But through that judgment and over the next few centuries, Christ greatly silenced the accusations and persecutions of the Judaizers. He greatly ended those persecutions. The various historians who tell us about this time tell us that the persecutions against the Christian church, which were by the hands of the Jews, largely ended after the sacking of Jerusalem and then dwindled over time. Exactly in the same way, God took notice of the persecutions that were coming from the Roman Empire against the Christians in the first three centuries of the church and he took note of their threats and brought a judgment against the empire of Rome. Rome, as the scriptures tell us, was a mixed empire. And Christ, in Psalm 2, shatters the clay pots. He, he shattered the Roman Empire. He brought to nothing the height of Rome, which boasted in their power to persecute the Christians. In time, Christ crushed the Roman Empire, which persecuted the Christian church. We can see that in Daniel 2. In Daniel 2, there's a promise that after this image is destroyed, that the saints would receive an unshakable kingdom. And the book of Hebrews says, Be patient, for we are receiving an unshakable kingdom. He's telling his hearers to be patient and to be reserved. to to wait patiently for the judgment that comes from the Lord. James tells them to be patient like the farmer because he knows that what is sown is reaped. God will not forever allow the Federal Reserve to exist. Likewise, God will not forever allow abortions to be perpetuated on the earth. He will bring a judgment. God will not allow forever our country to so-called sanctify a fraud of so-called marriage between men and men, and women and women, that is no marriage at all. And they they shake their fist at God, who defines marriage. God will not allow these evils forever. As a Christian, how can we know to live? How how to live in America? We ought to be salt and we ought to be light, but we also ought to be patient. Though the righteous suffer now, there is a day on which Christ will settle all accounts. Why why is the Scripture so? clear on this is because when you begin to see the great evils which are perpetuated in society today, the only answer, unless you trust in a judgment, a righteous judgment of a righteous judge who will judge with perfect justice, unless you trust that he will settle all accounts either on the cross or in hell forever, unless you trust in that sort of judgment, you have no other option than to become jaded, to resign from life, or to become militarily Uh, vindictive those are your only options because the heart of man that's been redeemed by christ wants justice and the only answer for justice that doesn't come today has to be justice rooted in the in the judgment uh, at the seat of judgment in in christ that is the only way by which you can know the evils which are perpetuated in this earth and not lose your mind so to speak so what is the point of all this The point is that we ought to learn how to establish our hearts in the love of Christ. That's what James is saying. He's saying that there are people who boast. There are people who murder the poor through fraud. Does he call them to execute a revolution? No, he says to his hearers, he says in verse 8, verse 7 and verse 8, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts For the coming of the Lord is at hand. He puts a hope for them in a judgment which is coming soon. The righteous suffer now, but there is a day on which Christ will settle all accounts. And therefore, Christians must not avenge themselves, but must, as as Paul tells us in Romans 12, to leave it to the wrath of God and to do good to their enemies. We cannot turn the other cheek unless we realize that there is a day on which God will settle the accounts. We do not have to be involved in settling the accounts. We are called to one thing and one thing alone is to love our neighbor, even as Christ said, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and to establish our hearts in the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bring to us a great sobriety concerning the evils of our world. We know, Lord, that this is not a more evil time than other evil times in the world. Lord, deliver us from pessimism, which sees the evils of this world and rails against it. Uh, But Lord, also deliver us from vigilantism and the, the the sort of approach to the world that is dismissive of the plight of the poor and dismissive of those who are who are slaughtered in the womb and dismissive of those who uh, who fatten themselves in a the day of slaughter. Lord, we pray that you would give us a great understanding of the Christian gospel as it relates to societal transformation. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us to be a church that is salty, that is savory, that has a distinct flavor of righteousness, and a church that is full of light, a church that speaks against evil and commends the righteousness of God. But Lord, I pray that you would give us this sort of patience that James is saying, that we would trust in the judgment that you will execute, that you are a perfect judge. Your word says, shall not the judge of the earth do rightly? Lord, I pray that you would give us that sort of faith, which would trust that you are God and that you are not mocked, and that one day you will settle for all time, all accounts. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us to become the sort of people who live as salt and light in this world and that we would be able to point people to a gracious and redeeming God, a God that is calling out to sinners to come and to to find mercy in Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from any form of uh, pessimism about the world or... or, uh, a lack of ability to to live as salt and light, but that you would give us mighty grace to be able to be a shining light in Jesus' mighty name, amen.